Welcome back to our podcast, Gold Digging with Stephen Webster, where we dig for nuggets of gold from our friends, family, and those of whom we want to know more. December 2022 marks the launch of a collaborative capsule collection between Stephen Webster and Sky Diamonds. The collaboration has been eight years in the making and has been an exciting, creative and scientific journey. While the jewellery collection has been developed throughout the eight years, the timeline has been dictated by the collaborating partner Sky Diamonds. This is because prior to the start of this journey, Sky Diamonds didn't exist. They were nothing more than a twinkle in the eye of the creator and our guest today, Dale Vince, who in an alchemy moment of madness, believed he could make diamonds from the sky. (laughs) Welcome, Dale. (laughs) Thank you. I think it probably was my maddest idea ever, actually, when I had it, uh, which was 10 years ago, actually. And I'm super excited about that. I mean, I I love talking about it because it it is alchemy. You know, we are turning something. We have too much of carbon dioxide in the air into something that we really like to have, diamonds. And it doesn't get much better than that, yeah. It certainly doesn't. So, well, look, I'll tell you what, we're really excited to, to share with, with our listeners the process of mining the diamonds from the sky. But I, I, think, I think first we need to know a bit more about your unlikely and extraordinary personal journey from living literally off-grid as a traveller whose nomadic lifestyle meant that wherever you hung your hat was your home, usually that home had wheels on it, to becoming a successful eco-entrepreneur as a major provider of renewable energy to the UK, a football club owner of whom the squad not only have to be good at the game but also have to be vegan, and now you wear in the hard hat of a diamond miner. And I want to say a person who still enjoys disrupting the establishment when the establishment is a threat to the future of our planet. So, Dale, welcome and let's get digging. And maybe we can start with you sharing with us uh, your journey and I think starting with your meaningful relationship with the wind. Yeah, cool. So I, I did spend 10 years living on the road in a whole bunch of different things, buses and trucks and ambulances and uh, and even a bender which is like an english igloo um if you can imagine a dome made out of hazel poles bent over covered in a tarpaulin usually off the back of a lorry literally and metaphorically then um you know that's a that's a bender and they're lovely things to live in i spent 10 years like that because i really cared um to live a different way i didn't like living in towns i didn't like the, the convention uh, that was thrust upon me having left school. So I went to pursue this other kind of life and, and it was naturally a more sustainable kind of life. I was more in touch with um, the energy that I used, where it came from and all that kind of stuff. It, you know, you live that way. The seasons affect you because the days in the winter are so short. You've got to get out, get your wood, get your water and get back in before it gets dark because there were no electric lights and stuff. But as the decade progressed, I got a little windmill to power my trailer. I had a big trailer by then and I got some train batteries from a scrapyard and uh, and I kind of ran myself that way. I ran a thing called Wind Phones in Glastonbury. I got an old um, power pylon and 60 foot tall, converted it to hold a windmill on top, train batteries down the bottom. And those big transportable phones, you remember the first phones that came out early 90s? And I sold phone calls at Glastonbury powered by the wind. And, um, and that was a great deal of fun. And then I had the idea that actually I could spend another 10 years living this way. This would be 1990. Or I could drop back in and, and try to change the way 
energy was made in Britain. I, I saw that big windmills were coming. I understood how wind energy worked. It powered my life. And I thought, let's do that. Let's drop back in, build a big windmill on this hill I was living on, which I knew was windy because I had a windmill that powered my life. And that was the beginning of my journey in business, let's say, using business as a tool to change to change the world, actually, uh, which is what I've tried to do. And um, <clears throat> I built that first windmill. It took five years, enormous battles with everybody. I had no money, no experience, no reputation. And wind energy itself was brand new and didn't even know itself. Uh, so it was a kind of steep, fun learning curve. Uh, I formed Eco Trisley in 1995. We were the world's very first green energy company. I didn't know that at the time. Um, and, and the journey really got going after that. We pioneered uh, the megawatt class windmills in Britain, megawatt scale uh, solar projects. Later on in the 2000s, we brought green gas to Britain, a new concept. Uh, we just created a new way to make that from grass. First project goes live early next year. And um, in the early 2000s, having tackled energy, which I, I started with because it was the biggest single source of carbon emissions, I went looking for second and third and found it was transport and food. And that energy, transport and food together, 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint. And I thought that's a great message and a great focus. So built an electric car, started in 2008 when there were none in the world and everybody thought electric cars can't work. We called it the nemesis because it was meant to be the end of the oil, uh, well, the oil driven car. And um, it still holds the land speed record in Britain today, uh, all these years later. Off the back of that, I understood that there was a chicken and egg problem. Nobody was building somewhere to charge cars because nobody was buying cars and they weren't buying cars because there was nowhere to charge them. So we created a network, a national network, first in the world of places to charge them, only using three pin plugs to begin with, which was rather silly, but better than nothing. Um, within within 18 months, we, were, we had 50 kilowatt charges rather than five kilowatt charges. And so suddenly it became real. You can see electric cars are taking over the roads now. Um, and, you know, so we were we were in there trying to electrify cars uh, at the beginning. And then 2010 rescued my local football club, Forest Green Rovers. Never actually had a plan. They were just about to go bankrupt and I didn't want to see it happen. Day one bumped into the fact that we were supplying red meat to uh, our players and uh, stopped that immediately and, and then began a series of kind of reality bumps, right? I bumped into things we were doing at the club, one thing after another and realized I had to change everything. And in the process would create a green football club would not be preaching to the choir in terms of uh, our fans, the audience, and that made it more attractive. And so we just got on with the job. The UN call us the greenest football club on the planet, uh, as does FIFA. And we've gained two promotions from non-league to League One now. We've got ambitious plans for an all-wooden stadium designed by Zaha Deeds Practice and, and an ambition to get to the championship, our, our next big step in football. But what we found is that football is the most amazing platform to communicate uh, environment messages we you know our fans have embraced it they've changed how they live we've got a global fan base which is incredible we're we're still a tiny football club really and um, and it's been great fun and fun is one of the most important ingredients of everything that we do we try to show people that the life that we need to live to be green isn't about giving stuff up and we like to say whether we're talking cars burgers or football because we've done all of those and now diamonds we just have to find another way to get all of those things um that's about it i mean we have got some other stuff going on. Sky Diamond, of course, is, is but really big. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think sometimes that I put the mental into environmental. That's just for a bit of fun. But, uh, you know, I'm having a good time. I'm doing what I really believe in. Uh, it's, it's a nonstop battle. The challenges are huge. And that might have been too long a monologue for, for your life. No, it was no perfect. You yeah. delivered it at quite a pace, I can tell you. Yeah, but I, it makes me smile. I've heard it 
it, to be honest, I, I've heard it before. You told me when we sat in, in a vegan restaurant in Stroud, of course, um, and then I was blown away by it. But I think I'd forgotten, or maybe you missed out the bit of selling phone calls in Glastonbury. But um, anyway, it's amazing. Yeah. The whole story is amazing. Exactly right. Um, the, you know, the electric cars, because I knew a bit, I knew, I knew you, you took on the mighty Elon Musk at one point, and uh, I think you won that battle. Yeah, yeah, yes. excellent. Yeah, which, which actually is quite yeah. funny, because he's got his own battles he's fighting himself now, I think. So. obviously leading to the Sky Diamonds and, and when we first met. And um, someone had said to me, I think, I think possibly my PA, that there's someone who wants to see you about some diamonds. And honestly, that I couldn't have had any less enthusiasm because, you know, you can probably imagine any moment I can look at anywhere and someone's trying to sell me some diamonds. And, and anyway, yeah. in the end, you, you managed to get yourself into, into my office. And, and I, the minute I saw you, I thought, OK, this, this is not going to be a normal diamond dealer. I, I, that, that's for sure. Yeah. And then you showed me it was a bit like Jack and the Beanstalk. You sort of you know, produce from your pocket these three brown crystals um, and and sort of gave them to me as, as diamonds. And it wasn't that I disbelieved you, but I, I sort of immediately gave them to, to the woman who deals with our diamond procurement. And uh, we had a very expensive piece of kit upstairs, which, which funny enough, De Beers had lent us so that we could um, identify the rogue laboratory diamond right so i happen to have it on the premises i don't have it anymore we tested them they were 100 percent diamond and and then i kind of had a feeling there was going to be a story behind it which but i could nothing could have prepared me for what what you said to me you know look the, these are these are diamonds that are mined from the sky and um i think i'm i'm gonna let you expand on that part but i think also you, you had been told to come to me because possibly I was the jeweller with at least um, a rebellious spirit, which obviously you've got. And, uh, and quite possibly in, in my industry, there's not that many of us. There's going to be more than me. But anyway, I think that's how you found your way to my office. So, so I, I'd like you to just sort of uh, share with us a, a bit about what the hell happens when you do bring... Uh, a diamond from exactly the opposite place to where we we are used to sort of thinking diamonds come from. All right. Yeah. Happy to happy to talk about this. Uh, but but first off, I do remember that meeting, and I remember that you surprised me by being uh, by being really quite pleased and excited about what I showed you. Not not necessarily because of how we were making them, but you liked the color, and that's what really surprised me. You were saying to me that actually, you know, there's a section of the market that's moving away from pure white, and you like the color, and that really because I'm I'm sorry they're brown, and you were like, oh no, they're lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true, absolutely true. It was it was actually at that moment when people were looking at uh, you know the purpose, let's say, of all the diamonds that aren't that pure white that we've all been told they should be. Um, that, was, that was why I was sort of already enthused by the color brown. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, I guess to explain the story to, to people that are listening, I had the idea about 10 years ago, didn't get started on it probably in, uh, you know, for a couple of years. Um, and, and I was 
I was thinking about geoengineering, how we get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And, uh, and it struck me that there are lots of different ways to do it. But if you don't lock it up into some permanent form, then you've only done half the job. And, and it just struck me the most permanent form of carbon that we know of is diamonds. Turn carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into diamonds. It was a crazy idea, so I thought I'd pursue it. Because they're the best ones, right, to pursue. The ones that seem really, really improbable, if not impossible. <laughs> and uh, we, we started an R&D journey. Um, we collected the technology together to get the gas we needed from the sky and then get it into a form that we needed to get it into uh, a CVD machine, which is a fairly, at the time, new technology for making diamonds. The, there was an old, older-fashioned way from the 1950s. Uh, and so it kind of that was good timing for us, this new tech. Um, and, and I think we started making stones like brown stones, you know, probably was seven or eight years ago. And, and then we spent a lot of time perfecting the recipe. It's all about the purity of the gases. And I think we're, we're fortunate in our approaches to take everything we need from the sky. Uh, other labs that make stones use industrial gases based on fossil fuels, and there are contaminants in them. Uh, so we don't have that problem, which is why I think we're getting to great qualities. Um, one of the things I love about Sky Diamond is our ingredient list. You know, I say to people, we take everything we need from the sky, and, and it's literally true. We have the wind and the sun for power. We have the rain, which we collect and split to make hydrogen. Um, we, we grab CO2 from the sky. That's it. That's our ingredient list. Wind, sun, rain, carbon dioxide. And, and our process is carbon negative by design. There's no offsetting uh, or any of that kind of greenwashing going on. <clears throat> uh, each one of our single carats of stone, they've just been certified uh, by uh, Imperial College, I think it is, to be six kilograms carbon negative. Um, and this is, for me, an industrial first, a process that um, that actually leaves the, the environment cleaner than it found it. So the air that we take out of the atmosphere is dirtier than the air that we put back. We put back cleaner air. And no industry has ever done that. So for me, this is 21st century in industry, as it needs to be, cleaning up the planet as we make the things that we need to have. Uh, and it's also about replacing uh, mined diamonds. And we commissioned a report from Imperial College about that because there's a real impact, a really big impact. There were no independent studies into that. Uh, there was no data as to what the real impact of earth mining for stones is. Uh, so we produced that. I can tell you about that if you're interested. Um, but yeah, Sky Diamond, been a long journey, 10 years from concept to launch. We started selling them January last year in our little online shop and, and sold out, I think, within six hours or something, which was great. And um yeah, now we're in the business of, of diamonds as well as cars, burgers, footballs, green energy, and God knows what else. <laughs> Excellent. When I hear you speak about it, and I, and I think I'm probably as qualified second to you and your team to be speaking about it, because because I've you know I've I've been to the facility several times. I've I believe exactly what you say a hundred percent because I I don't have to dig very far to find out that they're all facts. And I, and I think this is where it sits apart from anything else that's out there because, you know, I, I've even read since we made this announcement that this is another, another sort of green diamond, da, 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 da. I know this is different. I'm not saying that there's not other alternative created stones, but, but this one's ahead of the game and they may never catch up. They may or may not. I don't even care. I just feel like... I I wanted to stick with this story because I really believed in it from from that day one, and um, you know, like I say, eight years down the line. But you know, 
I, I also know there's been some technical issues. You always overcome them. Um, the, you know, not the smallest one not being a COVID issue. <laughs> because I remember you waiting for a part. There was like one part that needed to come from Italy that uh, got held up for about two years, I think, from the COVID side, which was something to do with the methane, the last 5% element, wasn't it, of, of the, the gas? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so good memory. Good memory. That's exactly what happened. We were due to take delivery of this uh, final piece of our puzzle to, to make methane from uh, captured rainwater and captured CO2. Um, uh, we had we had a device designed for us that would do that. And uh, yeah, Italy shut down first in the pandemic, didn't it, before we did. Yeah. And we sat here thinking, that's perfect, because it was already late anyway, this device had been ages in the making. Uh, but yeah, we overcame that. And yeah, methane is a small part of the gas, but a really crucial part. It's the carrier for the CO2, the carbon that makes the stone. Um, <clears> that has been a really, really fun journey. And actually, I'm really pleased that we got to launch together because uh, I always wanted to do that because we'd spoken so many years ago, because you had been so positive about it. Uh, for me, that's that, that made sense, right? Um, that's the kind of person I am. Uh, there's a great fit between how you operate and how how I operate. So, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of... I want to say made for each other without sounding too romantic or something. But. Maybe maybe we should use one of our rings to, as an engagement ring. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a great fit. And uh, 100% Stephen Webster is always considered to be the one that's, you know, we're not afraid to be going forward if we feel we're doing it for a reason, right? You know, and sometimes that's got something to do with the environmental or just just going, you know what? We're in an industry that's so tight, you know, and so like almost scared of change that from since I created Stephen Webb's The Business, which was in 1990, I've wanted to burst out of that. And, and a bit like you said about the maddest ideas are often the best. You know, they're definitely the best challenges and then they are the ones that people recognise you for. I think along that journey, this this included, this story, they've always been those ones. And, and I love it, and I know you do, when someone says that that's not going to work or who's ever yes. going to want to buy that? <laughs> That's oh, my yeah. favourite oh, one. Yeah. Is my who's favorite. ever going to want to buy yeah. that? Yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> let's let's see. You're, you're right. <laughs> no, you're right. I love that. So we got started about the same time then, 1990. That's interesting. And you know what? One of the very well, the first thing I did was green energy, and when I, I went to a local power company and said, "Do you want to buy some green energy?" You know what they said to me? They said, "What's that? Who's going to want it?" <laughs> Yeah, and I'm like, well, it doesn't exist well, in the world yet. So how can we know if people want uh, it or not, that's, right? That's very funny. So how did you have the conversation oh. to, I mean, I'm going to say to the grid because I'm, an, I'm ignorant. Good questions. Right. So the first windmill we built was a proper windmill. Um, and I found a tiny company in Germany that were making a very different kind of windmill to what everybody else was making. Everybody else had a gearbox and they ran at a fixed speed, whatever the wind speed did. And this caused all kinds of disharmonies. Um, I found a company that were building windmills without a gearbox and the blades sped up and down with the wind, which was much more natural, uh, had a lot less induced stress and actually made more energy. It was a more kind of natural way to do it. So I teamed up with them against the, uh, you know, the 90% of people in the industry that said that will never work. Right. I heard that about that one. That will never work. I, uh, I did the wind monitoring myself, which you have to do as a hub height of 40 meters, proper windmill, half a megawatt in size, biggest in Britain when I built it. Um, and then I did the planning 
and and then I did the grid application to get connected to the grid, and then there was the appeal against planning. Then there was the financial model. I, I literally built the foundation myself. I was in the hole digging the foundation, but I did everything, which was great. But before I built it, I mean, it was a five-year process, and I could see it coming in 1995. I could see that it would come. And I built it on Friday the 13th of December, 1996. I remember it well. And it was great fun. But I went to the local power company and I said, there's windmills coming. Um, do you want to buy the power? It's some green energy. And this, these are the people that laughed at me. They literally laughed and said, what's that? Who wants it? And by the way, they were a monopoly buyer at the time. So they said, here's a price and it's a rubbish price, but you can't sell it to anybody else. But Margaret Thatcher, bless her not, had actually liberalized the energy market at that same time. And I was able to become an energy supplier. So I went away and I faxed off my application to Ofgem when faxes were in the world. Uh, and when an, an application form to be a supplier was just two or three sides of A4, I just faxed it off. I had, I had nothing, right? And I got back a license to supply electricity. And I started Ecotricity as well as first green energy company. What I figured was I had to cut out the middleman, the, the bad old power companies that laughed at the idea to reach the end user to get a fair price for the power. And that's how it all started. It's amazing. I suppose the parts that have formed your story have always started that way. So we, we are on to to where we're at with the diamonds. So we, you know, like you say, the first ones were, were brown and, and despite my enthusiasm, you were determined to make them white, which I think probably commercially was absolutely the right thing to do. I'll tell you what it was with the brown. I think I probably remember at the time I said, I think this feels like it's full of shit, right? Carbon, it feels like it's got something in it that, that we don't want. <laughs> And, and I know that we've, you know, with your chef there, we've sort of been there with you and, and uh, you see what comes out, you know, the recipes are right, you know, you're, you're getting a very, very high, white, beautiful, you know, commercially acceptable diamond for the market, right? Which, which you know, is the way that most people look at, at what a diamond should be. But I do also feel that, you know, some of the conversations we had about you know, the idea of the ones that, that aren't perfect, you know, the grey colours, the ones that are got bl black specks in, you know, this idea of embracing that imperfection is definitely uh, something that will, that you will find. Um, I know we will, we know at the moment, all the stones we've used, Sky Diamonds are the ones, like I say, that, that fit into what people imagine a diamond to look like. And, and I think that's really a good way to launch because Rob, you know, you say these are chemically identical to a, to a, a stone that's come out of the ground. And, um, and that's amazing, <laughs> right? It's amazing. So, so to the point where even my, which I don't have anymore, my expensive piece of kit that De Beers gave me can only tell the difference about 60% of the time, which, which renders it useless because if it was 100, amazing. I think you'd accept yeah. if it was 95. But the fact that it was, I mean, you know, I'm sure someone may listen to this and go and complain that they're now 80%, I'm, I'm sure. But the fact was that this was put on the market as the way to tell the difference and they, they really couldn't. Can I ask a question first? Because I'm dying to know. 
<laughs> did your machine did your machine detect the diamonds I gave you, the brown ones, as man-made or nor not? Well, it, you know what? I, I think you were here, weren't you? I, I think Justine yeah. came down and said, "Okay." She said, "They're a hundred percent diamond. What are they?" <laughs> That's what she said, <laughs> right. which That's was right. quite funny. That's yeah, right. That's nice. And uh, you reminded me that, uh, you know, I, I know that uh, there was, um, <clears throat> and, and there still always will be, I think, um, a push from De Beers and the mining industry to say, we've got to make sure we know the difference between uh, man-made and, and mine. Uh, and, and we agree with that. And actually, we, we're going to mark our stones so that you can't get them confused with something that's been ripped out of the ground which is to invert that kind of, uh, I want to call it snobbery. It's not quite the right word, but that, you know, that differentiation, we, we think it's more important that they're not ripped out of the ground. And I, I want to tell you about the impact of that if there's time. So, so basically we've, we've uh, taken your sky diamonds. We, um, at Stephen Webster, we created five unique cuts. So we came up with the vault and the, the meteoric can get, well, they've, they've all got electro space names and they're, they're very unique cuts. And um, also it's probably worth to share that, you know, with the gold, cause you know, the gold is a, is a strong element once it becomes a piece of jewelry. We are using um, either recycled gold or single mine origin, which is, which is something I wanted to talk to you about. With a single mine origin gold, you it's it's more about a traceability to a community, to an exact location of where the gold has come from. Um, but of course, the gold is still mined because you know the the mines that have been identified with um, us and and the people involved in single mine origin is is where you can see a community that thrives. Um, because it has one thing that it does. In this case, it's gold. And I, and I wondered how you, I, I know you're going to be torn with these things, but you'll have an answer. Single source, it sounds good. I think <clears throat> traceability is really important uh, in this world. I think people are looking for it increasingly. Um, one of the things that wasn't realised or, or widely known about in the current conflict between Ukraine and Russia is that 30% of all the diamonds in the world come from Russia. Yeah. While we were putting sanctions on all kinds of stuff, it was a bit slow to happen to, to diamonds. And actually, jewelers don't tell you where diamonds come from. You know, they just don't know. Uh, and, and if they did know, they probably wouldn't tell you. But 30% are from Russia. And that's interesting. So I think single source is important. I think um, that way you can at least know what the environment impact of that mining is, because there are different ways to mine gold. And yeah. there are... You know, there are bad practices and there are good practices. So for me, it would be important that it was a good practice, single source mine that looked after the environment as well as looking after the people around it. Um, there, are, there, are, there are diamond mines uh, that are so big in Russia, you can see them from orbit. I think I may have shared pictures. You yeah, I, I was aware of them myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. you're right. And, and uh, that's the highest impact type of mining that you can get in our industry, right? Because it's not, yeah. that doesn't happen in, in sapphires or rubies, it's diamonds because it's worth yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. It's worth to dig that hole that big because yeah. the profit is there to do it. But it's very unique yeah. in as much that that is a, process, a way of extracting. And, and you said ripped yeah. out, that's exactly where it applies, I think, is it's literally yeah. ripped out, yeah. No, that's right. And when we commissioned this study from Imperial, what we got back was a shocking bunch of facts. Because, as I said, I set out to do this as a carbon capture kind of project, capture carbon, turn it into a diamond, that'd be great. And I thought, 
naively that, for example, at the end of every year, I could go to a company and say, here's your carbon footprint in a sack full of diamonds and you give them to your workers and everybody's happy and, and that would be great. But it don't work that way because the amount of carbon in a stone is really small chemically. Um, but when we commissioned the Imperial study to see what we were replacing, then we found that we had a real um, purpose environmentally because for a single carat of diamond, which, as you know, is a fifth of a gram, the industry typically digs 1,100 tons of rock out of the ground for a single carat. Uh, I don't know if you know this. Um, and uh, uses 5,000 litres of water, which is five tons of water for that fifth of a gram of, of, of diamond. Uh, exposes 30 tons of toxic metals to the environment out of them 1,100 tons. There's 30 tons of toxic metal. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever played the game Minecraft, but in Minecraft you have cubes. Think of them as a meter cube. In a year, the mining industry produces enough meter cubes to cover Belgium every year in, in spoil. So this is the impact. And half a ton of greenhouse gas, by the way. One carat, half a ton of greenhouse gas. Um, and we don't have to do that anymore. Our big thing really is to call for the end of diamond mining. I know that you're not, you're not there with us on that, and that doesn't matter. But like fossil fuels, we're saying... Uh, you know, we have renewable energy. We don't need fossil fuels anymore. We need to end them. They're bad for the planet. We're saying the same thing about diamond mining now. We don't have to mine the ground. We can mine the sky. You yeah. might cut that bit out and I don't uh, mind. No, no, no. I'm absolutely, <laughs> Dale, I'm not cutting it out. I've been um, 46 years a jeweller, you know, and that means I've used all the materials that that, um, that a jeweller uses. And, and But I think I very, very early once there was questions surrounding how our materials reached us, I was there, you know, and I mean, you know, 15 years ago, I, I was in the first batch of people to get a fair, fair trade gold license, fair mine, fair trade. And I went with fair trade to some mines in Peru. I was the first jeweler that they'd ever seen at the mine. I mean, the guy, I'm down a mine, a guy, he's like four foot tall. He's looking up at me and asking me why I'm there. And, and then the guy says, well, he's here because he wants to, he wants to be part of, of the story, which is why we're here to sort of help educate on the practices that are used. And a, and a lot of this was about the use of mercury. And I mean, look, we don't need to talk too much about how damaging that is, but that was the, the cheapest way they thought to extract, um, um, you know, artisanal mined gold from the ground. And it was like going back to the cavemen times, you know, the way that they grinded. Two men stood up either side of a big rock, you know, just like the Flintstones. And then that rock, you know, put it into mercury and then they can extract it, set the mercury alight and they're left with, with you know, some dust. But, oh, my God, the life expectancy of this mine was probably about 28, you know. Anyway, I've seen all that, and I chose that we wouldn't ever use gold bought to, uh, to the market in that way. Very, very difficult to do, like you say, because gold can be melted. Diamonds, you, you've, you, you nailed it. You know, the minute Russia invaded the Ukraine and I lost 30% of my business because I had a, a business in Russia and a business in the Ukraine. Um, you know, we, 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 we distance ourselves from those instantly, right? done, gone. And the same with diamonds. The problem with diamonds is that no one can tell because they all go to India and get cut in the same place, right? That, that's a fact. Now, you can do everything you can to try to avoid that being part of your process, that, that's literally it. You, you can't 
guarantee anything, but you do your best. And I guess this is where we sit on every practice that's more conventional than Sky Diamonds because you are the only thing that's like that's like where you are, right? There isn't anything else. They're not, they're not doing it for gold yet. <laughs> so you've got to work out how you work around these things. And um, believe me, I sit on many panels. I did one this week. And it was very interesting listening to people who don't have your solution. But there were some really good stories. There was a geologist from Denmark who was just, just the most loveliest guy who literally goes around the planet trying to educate small communities on extracting gold with just just some water not not hundreds of millions of gallons we're talking just some water in a way that's an alternative to these mercury you know and and you know these guys he's a good guy you know and and it and it, in some ways it was quite sad where he said often he goes back to this community a couple of years later and they've gone back to the mercury because the mercury suppliers are like a gang and they, they literally start turning on the thumbscrews if these guys are not, oh, I mean, it was horrendous. I have to run a business, can't quite yet do it all on Sky Diamonds, but, but I think going back to why we're together here is because I couldn't ignore this good story. There was no way, you know that, from day one, I, I, I didn't need to be sold on it. I'm like, right, we're on board. Came back, told my staff, we're on board. They're like, what? What are you talking about, diamonds from the sky? <laughs> I think just before we, we sort of wrap up, I think I want to expand, and maybe you can a little bit, on this idea that, so every diamond has got a laser mark or, or a certification to say it's a sky diamond, because you want it that way, right? Which, which is very, very important. Yes. Don't get mixed up with any other created diamonds, no other mined diamonds. You want people to to know that this is a sky diamond. I was just gonna say, yeah, I mean, it's about authenticity, isn't it? It's about uh, provenance, it's about knowing what something is and where it came from. And I just think it's increasingly important, but especially in this market that we now find ourselves in, you know, where, uh, where we are competing with uh, ground mined diamonds <clears throat> we've got a we've got a much lower impact uh you know offer for people and uh, and for us it's really important that you can be sure of what you're getting which is what De Beers say as well but we just come at it from a different place and we say <laughs> you need to be sure you're not getting one of them <laughs> I mean, they say the opposite yeah i know it's true but we've got a green team here so we're we're doing everything we can to get towards a b corp kind of status which as you know is no mean achievement, right? We're, but we're determined we're on that path because we, we want them to be as sustainable as we can be. And, and I think, you know, the younger people in my business love that that's the business they work for. And, and I feel that, you know, this, this diamond, this jewelry, the jewelry we've done together around Sky Diamonds is gonna to talk to a younger consumer. There's no question. I mean, my little bits of market research suggest there's a huge enthusiasm amongst that sort of age group of your millennial and younger. Not that an older person won't want it, but I feel you, this is talking directly to, to this sort of generation who are now just entering into when they may need some jewelry in their lives, you know. The, all the questions, the answers are there. It's a choice. You can say, I want this stone as opposed to that. There's traceability. Um, it's very, very exciting. Yeah, I feel the same way about that. I think that, uh, you know, younger people, 
generally are more on board with this whole green agenda you know in, in diamonds is one example in food is another and uh, and also you know this generation of people or these generations of people um they want more accountability they want to know that the money they're spending isn't doing bad things around the world and and that's a relatively new thing, I think, but it's very exciting. But, um, yeah, it's really, really great chatting to you. Well, I'm going to throw in something. It's a bit left field, but every now and again, I, I get off on some idea that I've, I, I want to just uh, express. And at the moment, I'm writing a recipe book about cabbage. It's called This Be Cabbage, which is a sort of a, a bit of a play on Hispy Cabbage. <laughs> I didn't know if you've got a cabbage recipe. As a vegan, a dedicated vegan, if you've got, if you've got a cabbage recipe, you can either throw it out there now or, or I will definitely have your recipe in my book. I don't. I like cabbage, but I don't have a cabbage recipe. I don't do an awful lot of cooking. But something we're doing that is also left field and also about food is that we're using grass to make gas at the moment. I mentioned it earlier. We're looking now to see how we can extract the protein from grass, which is what animals get, and make it edible for humans. Uh, which is so a different way to feed ourselves, not by literally eating grass, but eating the, the important bit of grass. That's our next big challenge. Can you just explain that bit again? What are you extracting <laughs> from the grass? Uh, protein. Oh, the protein. protein. Ah, right. Well, I, I've had your yeah. protein, your pea burgers. Devil's, Devil's Kitchen, Kitchen yeah. yeah. Which were very good. We barbecued them and, uh, yeah, they went down very well. So um, I'm assuming the grass yeah, will lovely. probably have... I've got some potential. What we've, we've scoped out that there's enough grass in Britain to make all of the gas that we need, right, so that we can stop fossil fuels, you know, cut off our dependency on Russia, Saudi Arabia, whoever, it doesn't matter, and also take this big climate step. But these volumes of grass contain massive volumes of protein, and we can take it out without affecting the ability to make gas. And that's super exciting because, you know, burgers like ours are made from um, protein isolate from peas. You can do the same with soya. That's that's a common thing to do, but it's not been done with grass. And we have so much of it. We could uh, we haven't crunched the numbers yet, but we might be able to be self-sufficient in protein as a country from this, as well as gas made just from our grass. How amazing would that be? Well, OK, as a man who uh, mines diamonds from the sky, I'm going to go with that. So I, should I be saving my clippings? Because at the moment, they weigh a ton. And I'm thinking, yeah, there's got to be a lot of protein in there. All right, Dale, we'll see you at the launch. And thank you very much. You're a very good gold digging guest. We've got some good nuggets. Thank you.